0: QUT acknowledges that Turrbal and Yugora as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs, and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research, and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded.
1: Welcome to How To Academia leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time on this podcast we talk to our friends students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world our guest this episode is matthew ball Matt is an associate professor at QUT School of Justice. His research focuses on the intersections between sexuality, gender, and criminal justice. He is currently one of the leading academics in queer criminology, having literally written and edited two of the foundational texts in the field. The discussion on this episode is a deep dive into queerness, including Matt's research, his experiences as a gay man in academia, and the prejudices that LGBT people still face in the world today. Without any further ado, Matthew Ball.
0: Welcome to How to Academia. Who
2: are you? My name is Matthew Ball. I'm an Associate Professor in the School of Justice at QUT. My research focuses on LGBT people and the criminal justice system, so a lot of the work that I've done has been around trying to find how we might include LGBT people in criminology and how we might have more responsive criminal justice policies for LGBT communities.
0: Let's come back a bit. Mm -hmm. You have the great experience of being an undergrad here at QUT and moving through to your excellence now. What made you decide to study justice?
2: I didn't get into law. (laughs) I didn't get a high enough um, OP uh, at the time to study law. So I thought of doing justice as a kind of a bridging course, but I didn't end up doing uh, the law degree because I found justice issues just to be much more interesting and much more engaging. And I thought that there was more... I I thought I'd enjoy whatever career I had in that space more than I would in a a law firm or you know, in, in whatever I did with law.
0: What was it about the justice subjects that resonated with you?
2: That we could sit down and question how things were going in our society just generally uh, and the, exposing me to new perspectives on the world and, new, and the experiences of people who I didn't have any interaction with growing up or uh, any understanding of their experience and realising that the world was... A different place for them that was really what kept me interested and it still keeps me interested as well.
0: So why the choice to become an academic?
2: I just (laughs) fell into that as well Um, because when I I started university when I was really young I was 17 so a lot of people do and when I finished I didn't feel that I was this is not nothing to do with the degree itself or you know anything but I just didn't feel that I was in a position in my own personal maturity and life and everything to be out there making decisions in kind of a government kind of context about the lives of people and putting that into practice and what have you. So I got some good feedback from one of my lecturers at the time, who suggested I just consider doing an honours degree. And I just the, the honours degree gave me an opportunity to um, to explore that. You know, the research path gave me an opportunity to really do what I loved about being an undergrad student and. Being able to consider these issues and, and and add to that knowledge as well.
0: How's your research changed across your career span?
2: When I started, I was I did my PhD on legal education, so I was interested in the way in which law schools produce particular kinds of mm. lawyers uh, graduates. And now I do this whole other area, you know, which is about LGBTQ people in. Um, you know, in, in criminology and what have you and what, what's similar about those is the interest in a group of people and social justice issues generally but it's more of a, the theoretical and methodological kind of similarity so the tools that I learnt in the PhD I can apply in, in, in my work today.
0: So you're a founding scholar in queer theory. That's a pretty big deal. In queer
2: criminology. Queer criminology. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, queer criminology. My mistake.
0: <laughs> in queer criminology. What, I guess, drew you to pursue a specific application to criminology?
2: One of my colleagues, when I first started out, um, was interested in, the, in the, the way in which we really don't talk about, and certainly didn't at the time, we didn't talk about uh, domestic violence in same-sex yeah. relationships. And she just suggested to me that this would be an interesting research area. And we did a little project on that. But that, that kind of process got me interested and kind of hooked me in that, in that field because to that point I'd never really thought about the way in which LGBT people were excluded from criminology and mm. criminal justice. I hadn't really engaged too much with criminology as a discipline so I really wasn't thinking along those lines but I thought that this was a, a really fantastic opportunity to do something meaningful and to do something original and new.
0: One of the things that I think is interesting about your approach is I think it em- it emphasises how theory fills a gap. What is that gap in your mind?
2: That's a difficult question, is it? <laughs> Another way of rephrasing that. <laughs> what is the gap? The gap is that for a very long time, criminology didn't really have to think about LGBT people in the sense of it really didn't have to do anything to support them or work you know, for them or deal with their experience or legitimise their experiences. Mm. So so historically, criminology as a discipline was... The nature of criminology as a discipline is that it's studying things that we define as crimes. It's moved on since, since that, but throughout most of the 20th century, homosexuality was a crime, was criminalised in mm. some form, uh, and also g- gender diversity was. And so what that means is that Criminologists were looking at LGBT people as deviant. Mm. And as laws changed towards the end of the 20th century, criminology really couldn't f- do anything in that space because homosexuality was no longer a crime. And so criminology just went silent. It didn't have anything to say about LGBT people. So occasionally you might see things about uh, hate crime that they experience or domestic violence, you know. So there was this focus. When it did think about LGBT people, it looked at them as victims of crime and victims of only specific crime. And it didn't really look to include them more thoroughly in the research that it did on anything else. So that's really where there's a space to, to develop a critique of criminology and to develop a critique of criminal justice policy as well. And that's really where queer criminology comes in. That's the gap that it kind of fills.
0: Is there, I guess, besides advocating for recognition of queer people, besides, and that's one of the things I love about criminology is that we come from this real advocacy background, Mm. what is it that queer criminology is really trying to
2: achieve? It's trying to get us to think about the way in which criminology is Stale and old, <laughs> and not very queer at all. I and mean, it's 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 trying to get, it's trying to provide a space for us to 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 legitimise queer experiences, uh, to say that those experiences are important for us to take into consideration that queer lives and uh, experiences might might actually give us new insights into. How we do criminology, what we how we can know about the world. Mm. It can give us insights into you know the pathways that people take into crime or out of crime. And it can give us ways of original ways of reshaping our criminal justice institutions. So whether that's innovative ways of responding to crime or responding to victimization or even reporting crimes or things like that. That's really what we're trying to achieve with with queer criminology.
0: So as queer people, we're this tiny percent of the population. Why should uh, institutions that are dominantly heterosexual care?
2: Why shouldn't they? I mean, that's that's, that's the way I'd sort of respond. I mean, first of all, we aren't a minority of the population. Uh, I mean, we...
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm like yeah giddy up i'm excited about that tell me matt
2: there's more of us out there than people think i think and i think any kinds of changes that achieved to make queer lives better are going to make other people's lives better so it's not just a it's not just a specific issue or specific Mm. problem or specific solutions for a small group of people there's a possibility that enhancing our criminal justice system to be more diverse, to, to reflect the diversity in the community much more effectively, uh, is going to make it a better, more more humane, more socially just criminal justice system, if that's even possible. But, you know, we're talking increments here. Mm. And so I think that, yeah, in, in that sense, it has great, broader applicability than just for LGBT people.
0: What are the core changes that you think need to be made? In terms
2: of, I mean, that's a broad question because I think that there are many changes that need to be made for, uh, in the criminal justice context, again, that, that aren't specific to queer people. So, you know, prison abolition, as an example,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, that's not just something that queer scholars might, or, or advocates might, um, might push for. That's something that's more broadly relevant. But if, you, if you're talking about criminal justice, uh, queer people generally and, and responsive policies... You know, one thing would be more effective training for police officers, for example, on how to interact appropriately with uh, LGBT communities and how to think through their own limitations from their own personal experience when responding to domestic violence, for example, which we know is mm-hmm. the majority of police police work, you know, face-to-face police work in that sense. Yeah, so you know, some of those those sorts of changes... Not only help people, or have the potential to help people who are actually in those circumstances, but they have they send a broader message about the responsiveness and openness of an institution like police to the community more, more generally. So, I mean, that's just one sort mm. of uh, one sort of example. But I think, in terms of criminology uh, as a discipline, including LGBT people. And thinking of through how we include LGBT people in research, for example, is again will just open up what we know about crime and justice.
0: So, what's it like being a gay man in twenty twenty two?
2: Again, with a difficult question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's my skill set, it.
2: <laughs> It's. I mean, I, I have been out for what are we now 2022 yeah (laughs) i've been out for 16 years okay um so i came out later in my life um i am you know i was was just speaking to my my students about this the other day you know i'm i'm a white cisgender male Mm. academic i'm personally privileged you know in a wealthy position professionally you know quite a privileged person so my experience of being gay is a unique, you know, is a particular one, and it's not necessarily one that is shared by everyone. It's not necessarily one that's shared by students at university or reflective of the broader community. So I can I can only kind of speak from that kind of perspective. And, you know, it's things that... Those issues don't mean that I don't experience issues or homophobia or anything like that, but it's easier for me to navigate that you know, or to, to put that aside or to deal with that than it, than it might be for other people. Does that answer your question? <laughs>
0: no, it totally does. I mean, my my, I guess what makes you think homophobia is still a thing? Surely we've moved beyond that socially, politically. I mean, you can be out and proud and we just, like, had Mardi Gras where people continue to dance down the street in their underwear with glitter and rainbows and political parties and police and ADF and all of that how is homophobia still a thing
2: well they could do that for one night a year (laughs) look i mean homophobia is still a thing because people still get kicked out of home for being gay or being trans um or have to leave home or they still get comments on the street i mean i still see people the people i follow on twitter for example highlighting the the homophobia that they've experienced just walking down the street just being dressed in a particular way or having particular hair or walking a particular way, thats that stuff still carries on. So, you know, yeah, so we've got Mardi Gras, we've had marriage equality. That's fine if you're getting married or if you live in Sydney for one night of the year or mm. travel to Sydney for one night of the year, but that doesn't make homophobia suddenly disappear. I mean, as a long-term thing, these issues help to address homophobia. They make it more possible to be gay. They make it... It's the representation in public life... That helps to break down stereotypes and prejudice and those sorts of barriers, but it still it still exists, and it it still exists in ways that you know, homophobia isn't just all the the negative aspects that you might experience for, for being gay or trans. You know, aren't just always what you might consider to be homophobia or overtly discriminatory or you know they they can be more subtle so in in one of the research projects that I did I remember interviewing a person uh, about their experience of policing and as a community member how they um, their experience of interacting with police and they they, I remember them telling me that there was a uh, situation for over a number of years with their neighbour who never said anything homophobic to them or their partner, never overtly did anything that you could point your finger at and say, that was homophobic Mm. discrimination. But, you know, they they were scratching their car or bending antenna or breaking a mirror, doing something in the garden of their place, like just this campaign of harassment, you know, and making them feel unsafe in their home. And one of their frustrations was that whenever they would try to explain this to a police officer the police would treat each incident as a separate... So not a, not a sustained campaign of harassment. Yeah. And even though they were experiencing it as connected to homophobia, the, 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 there was nothing, as I said, they could pinpoint and say, this person has has spray-painted a homophobic slur on my car or something. It's clearly homophobia. So, so it's, it's those little micro kind of aggressions or, or those specific experiences... Um, That build up. Recently, my partner and I are currently planning a renovation for our place and this is a stupid example but it just just highlights to me the ongoing way in which same-sex relationships are still seen as unique or abnormal or quaint in some way or or that people aren't confronted with this in the, in the, the broad scheme of things. We're doing a renovation and in the ensuite design we've put two basins in or wanting to put two basins in and whenever we describe this we describe the this usually described as his and her basins we describe it as his and his basins and that makes perfect sense to us that's the world in which we live you know that's normal for us but every time we sort of say this to a designer or to a person we're showing the designs to explaining the renovation to that you can see this look on their face or this chuckle or something and it's again it's not homophobia but it's a well it doesn't come across as homophobia but it's a it's still a recognition that they'd never thought of this before that they're wondering are you you know oh that's cute or you know are you having a go or you know it's just something about you you're expressing something about your relationship and they are responding in a way that straight people don't Mm. respond to it's
0: that i feel like it's that extra level of Emotional and cognitive energy that you have to put into thinking about how people might respond.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Part of our privilege, I suppose, is that we are very comfortable Mm. in those spaces being able to respond uh, and not. So so we still consider it in in particular circumstances, but you know, we're, we're in a position where if the people designing our. Apartment had a problem with that then we'd find someone else Mm -hmm. to do it like we're not going to stick with someone who is who's going to make us feel that way or make us feel uncomfortable in that kind of context yeah
0: what do you love about your gay relationship
2: my partner (laughs) (laughs) so I've been with my partner for 14 years and he's we've both grown in that time as individuals we've both learned a lot from each other and gone through a whole range of personal things that happen in people's lives so yeah I mean it's nice to have Some. I mean as I know it's very normative kind of. <laughs> but he hasn't put a ring on it yet so.
0: <laughs> he should totes get onto that I mean but that's Christian
2: the... if you're listening
0: <laughs> Christian when you're listening get the man a ring um I like. I think it's it's interesting to kind of I guess think about or not think about that queer relationships are not necessarily all that different to heterosexual relationships they just come with another layer of things that you have to think about yeah. outwardly yeah. so do you still think about outing yourself to students
2: i i do i i mean yes but i tend to do that early in the semester and i I just walk in and say, "Hey, I'm Matt. I'm a gay man." You know that that's not how I introduce myself, but you know the, the nature of the stuff that I teach in my in my classes because I do engage with social justice issues and you know disadvantaged groups, you know um, social inequality in Australia. Uh, it's inevitable that it comes up, um, and I've incorporated that material into you know material about uh, LGBT communities into my um, teaching. So uh, I make no I don't try and hide that necessarily from, from anyone in the teaching context. And again, I'm that that, that speaks to my ability as a teacher to do mm. that. Um, it might be different if I were a tutor or, or if I was a student in the class. I wouldn't necessarily always feel comfortable doing that. I hope that I can create a space if someone chooses to, to do that that is safe for them and welcoming for them. That's part of my desire not to be... Closeted at work mm. in these contexts because I think there's a, there's that power in being a, a role model and and not just for young queer people but for again for everyone but to reinforce that this is a diverse workplace you know the, the, the workforce at in any organisation is diverse mm. you know um, so why shouldn't it be seen to be diverse as well why shouldn't that diversity be visible
0: so what is it about being queer in the workplace—that's important. Why does it matter?
2: That that visibility and representation—I think I think that that's that is really important because what it also means is that you can be yourself at work. And you know, I'm, I'm critical of those sorts of discourses about being yourself and true self and authentic stuff. But I think that you know, if if you don't need to think or second guess what's going on or how people will respond to you, then I think that that uh, means that you're going to be better. You're going to be better at your job. You're going to be more comfortable in a workplace. Going to work is going to be a better experience for you. I think all of those things just are just important for your life and for your existence in a workplace.
0: Do you think there's any particular challenges in being the gay man on staff?
2: I think... I'm not sure that I've ever really reflected on that. Before, Um, I I haven't felt any specific pressure, but I understand where some pressure might might be put on someone in that kind of situation. Um, You know, there might be pressure for you to comment on every kind of attempt to achieve diversity in a workplace, or might be pressure be put on you to um, speak quote unquote speak for your community or for the gay people or something like that. that. That pressure, thankfully, I haven't felt. I haven't felt that as pressure because I've often been in roles where that's kind of expected of me as well, so it's something that I've led anyway, or been part of anyway. Um, there is, the, I mean, recently there was debate at the university level about, oh, sorry, at the, the government level uh, about religious discrimination mm. and a piece of legislation that, that um, came through, and that. That was a difficult time because i spoke to several colleagues yourself included and you know wanting to think about how do we as a community of queer people at qt respond to this and how is the university responding to this acknowledging the the harm that this kind of debate does to queer people and that was that was a difficult time so it wasn't just falling on my shoulders but you know on on the, the shoulders of several of us we felt that we had to encourage the university to make a statement of this. Now, thankfully, the university was already thinking about that, but we didn't know that. So mm. there was a lot of emotional labour in trying to get the, or wondering, what is the university going to do? How am I going to be supported at university today, in my workplace today, with this stuff going on? What are going to be the lasting impacts of this, uh, if this bill gets passed, you know, in, in a university that wants to be a diverse Mm. and inclusive environment. So as I said, that was a lot of emotional labour to be the out queer people in the university who are keen to see the university become a better place for queer people. And that's stuff that we shouldn't have had to do.
0: Mm. I think that's really interesting to me because thanks to the joy of Facebook (laughs) uh, and Facebook memories, this week the debate around safe schools has popped yeah. up on my memories and you know the memories will pop up around the debate around same-sex marriage and we've just had the religious discrimination bill and it is like there is these series of political events that have occurred for queer people that being a queer person in and even in a marriage equality debate queer is a much more problematic term in terms yeah. of gender diversity than just the good old gays and lesbians but there's this emotional labor that comes with at work you're not you can't divorce yourself from your gendered or sexual identity and the political space that that has and I think that's what you're I guess capturing there is that there's this additional labor so how would you encourage students to think about let's start with the queer students. How would you encourage students to think about who they're going to be in workplaces?
2: That's really good with these difficult I questions.
0: Totally, I totally. you, I warned you, Matt,
2: style. I'm good with the difficult <laughs> questions. How would I encourage...
0: What do you think queer students are going to have to think about in terms of their professional identities going forward?
2: They're going to have to make um, decisions about... Well, first of all, whether whether they're out. So they're going to have to have some skills in terms of reading their workplace generally and the, the specific team that they're working with uh, and their, their managers, I suppose. They, yeah, so they're going to have to make decisions about outing themselves and managing that and how extensively that is known throughout the organisation. I think that they're going to have to um, constantly make, constantly navigate the closet uh, that's something that queer people do in life anyway. And they're going to have to make decisions about... Well, think through when and how they're going to call out bullying or homophobia or transphobia in their uh, in their workplace. And they're going to have to find some way of being resilient of, of dealing with, with those pressures. Because that's a lot of pressure that mm. uh, that straight people don't have to think about.
0: What's been useful to you in navigating those things as a professional
2: i'm so again the the privilege that i have gives me some protection gives me some comfort uh, so i acknowledge that i know that's not something that, that everyone has so i think that i'm good at compartmentalizing things and key oh yeah that, that's been a a, a struggle for a long time but I'm pretty good at it now of keeping work things at work and keeping home things at home and trying to stop them from interfering with each other but that is a difficult mm. thing to that, that you only learn that with trial and error and experience what have you I am also I think one thing that again took me a long time to work out but uh, my worth is not determined by other people mm. so working out whatever that person thinks or says, that's their issue. I don't give a shit, you know. It impacts me. I don't like it. But why am I dependent on someone else for telling myself that I'm a good person, that I'm worthy, when when I have family and friends who will do that? You know, I've got people in my life that that recognise my worth and recognise the contribution and the, whatever joy I bring to their lives, you know. Yeah, so I think just... Knowing that other people don't determine your worth is is the key to that. I think also not having to be. If you're calling out homophobia or transphobia at work, you need to be able to do that in a safe mm. way. You need to be safe to do that. Now, obviously, calling it out, you know, people a- approach that as a way of making sure that the workplace is more safe. But I think you need to. Really critically consider that, and whether it is actually going to cause you more harm in the future. Because people can get their nose out of joint if you call them out on their behaviour. So it, it's about that. That's why reading people and knowing who to go to uh, might be a better option than I- immediately saying something in a meeting or, or, or what have you. Uh, and again, I, you know, I'm speaking with this from my own experience mm-hmm. uh, as well might necessarily be how everyone responds to that. But I think also part of what I think about when when I say, you know, is it worth making this point now and addressing this here? sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but I also think that you don't need to be the champion all the time. Yeah. You can and should be able to rely on colleagues um, and allies to be able to, to do that work for you as well you, you shouldn't the, the, the burden shouldn't fall on your shoulders all the time to call these things out and you needn't feel guilty or that you've let the side down or anything if you haven't responded to every single comment or thing that you think might be a comment or a sly remark or whatever and and that's a matter of also just judging how much do you actually need to invest in educating this person how much time and energy emotional labor as we we're saying, you need to spend dealing with their nonsense uh, and how much are you actually going to encounter them on a day-to-day basis Mm. in in your workplace now if it's a colleague that is constantly that you're constantly going to have to work with then obviously you have to try and do something again if the environment is such where you don't feel you can do anything at all then as as painful as it is maybe you know you're not going to last in that environment Mm. anyway You're not going to have a fulfilling career. You're not going to enjoy work. You're going to move on at some stage anyway. So those are difficult decisions to make. And, you know, I wish that it weren't the case. And, you know, we're all trying to change that. But, you know, we know that change in big organisations and workplaces is actually slow.
0: I think it's really difficult to find that balance between... We are driven to create more just worlds. We are driven to create spaces that are safe and to address injustice. And it's difficult to come to the point of recognising that I can't actually change the world on my own and to make those decisions about when do I do something and when do I not. What tips it for you? When is it important for you to say something as opposed to not?
2: First of all, I think it's always important to say something. So, so I don't lose. I don't go. Oh, that that's just a joke. Mm-hmm. That, that's fine. Like I, I always think I should say. That. Like I, I do. I still struggle with that, of oh, guilt of you know not dealing with something. Or and it's not until later that I think of. Well, this is how I could have handled it. I think when for for me the the, the tipping point would be. Is it s- such an offensive thing that? I couldn't sort of live with, or is it going to create such a situation Mm -hmm. that I couldn't live with myself, my own personal morals and values that that I that if I said if I didn't say something, then you know I'd feel really like I was part of the problem, or um, I don't know. That's not making sense as an answer, but I I think
0: I don't know. (laughs) It's okay, and I think one of the things that I think is really important for us to be saying is that we don't know Mm. and we're still trying to figure out how do i be this queer person in a workplace that is generally really great Mm. like i cannot tell you when i've felt a direct threat from any of my colleagues Mm. based on my sexuality but that doesn't mean it is void of challenges or void of things that we have to think about and we don't know we're still trying to figure it out Mm. and those are conversations that we should be continuing to have how can non-queer people I'm hesitant to just say straight people, but how can (laughs) no, no, how can non-queer people be supportive?
2: One of the key ways is to listen, Um, listen to what queer people are saying, listen to their concerns in debates and political issues that concern them and that they uh, are you know invested in, Um, recognizing that being cisgender or being heterosexual comes with a set of unearned invisible privileges mm. that need to be worked through we, we all have privilege in some contexts and lack privilege in other contexts and we need to work through because privilege is invisible to those who have it we need to not take it personally if if we are questioned if we're challenged but take it as a learning opportunity mm. i think that's really important for yeah, and, and also not not thinking that you have all of the answers. Like, oh, I've got queer friends. I know these issues. Mm. Maybe not. Also recognizing that we're even in, even in the community, even amongst the community, we're learning. So, for example, I'm as I said, I'm a cisgender gay man. So I have a particular experience about my sexuality and n- the hetero heterosexual norms in our society that we work against, but I'm also cisgender. I'm still learning in that space. I'm still learning how I can be a better ally for trans and non-binary and genderqueer, gender-diverse uh, people. So even though I have a general understanding of queer politics and what have you, um, you know, that doesn't mean that I get it right all the time. So you can only deal with that by being open to the conversation and reflecting on what you've done and what you've said and you know again you're you're not going to get it right all of the time but you're not getting it wrong all of the time Mm. you know there are diverse views amongst the community uh, about what is right for trans people or what is right for queer people or gay people you know so (laughs) so it's it everything you do is fraught Mm.
1: it's fraught
2: with danger um yeah that's one thing that you you can't get away from is that uh, yeah as Michelle Foucault says, uh, everything is potentially dangerous. But, you know, if if we didn't, I'm I'm, I'm bastardising the quote now, but, you know, that's always an impetus for change, Mm. basically. We just have to always be vigilant and aware of the exclusions or the injustices that what we do might produce and commit to doing better.
0: I feel like one of the very markers of our community is that we are diverse and we encompass this extreme levels of diversity that maybe other communities don't have to struggle with but there is something in recognizing and respecting your own humility and other people's humility that is important in coming to terms with
2: yeah
0: things and challenges and the complexities of trying to fix what are wicked problems yeah
2: absolutely yeah and i think but i do i do think that one of the one of the things that I think switches people off in this space, or any space where we're dealing with social justice and diversity, is that people feel that when their privilege is exposed or their behaviour is critiqued, mm. they feel attacked, they feel personally attacked. And some people do actually attack people, yeah. and that's not productive either, but you know, people feel personally attacked when, when they shouldn't necessarily... But as you said that humility taken as oppor- opportunity for personal growth as well is important but also sticking by your guns when it is important as mm. well uh, recognizing that not everyone shares the same view you've got to stick with your own moral position your, you know who, what do you morally value um, as a person you know what behavior or what have you would be absolutely abhorrent to you if you know if if you were to do it or if someone was to do it you know you've got to have some certainty about that as well some confidence otherwise you're just going to be you're just going to see criticism of yourself everywhere Mm. and that's not helpful either so it's that balance between being open to the growth but also finding the bedrock of who you are and what your morals are that really should inform decisions that you make in your life
0: Not just in the workplace. One of the incredible things that I think people overlook about being an academic is that you get a lot of criticism about a lot of things as just part of your daily skill set is dealing with people saying, I disagree with you, or you're wrong. And sometimes they say it nicely and sometimes (laughs) they don't. (laughs) And sometimes they're a reviewer too. What are your top tips for students?
2: I think that, uh, well, first of all, I'd say go to your lectures, read the material, go to your tutorials, listen to what your tutor says, your unit coordinator says, all that stuff that we... Because <laughs> we, you know, basically what I'm saying there is is listen to us because we have designed the unit for you to engage with and we're telling you how to succeed in the, in the unit. That's a very directive kind of response to that. I think more generally to, su- to su- succeed and to survive at university. Don't overburden yourself with subjects or with commitments mm. or with life in general. I think that there's nothing wrong with stopping your study, putting your study on pause for a while if life is overtaking you. I, I appreciate that that's difficult and that people might want to um, continue to study throughout all the challenge and get it over and done with so they can get out in the workforce. But I don't think, in, in many respects, I don't think you're doing yourself any favors if you have all of this personal stuff to deal with. Your, your work is making particular demands on you, and you're you're trying to stay full time. You're not, you're setting yourself up for failure in many mm. respects there. And I think that that is a broader lesson to learn uh, about your own your own skills and what you can you know how you manage your time and how you manage the stress of life generally because it is a... University is a stressful experience. Coupling that with the general stresses of life, then that makes it really mm. doubly difficult. And I think, you know, find space to take up the opportunities that university provides you. I mean, there's no real environment, unless you become an academic, and <laughs> stay in university for the rest of your life. There's no real other environment where you can um, engage in th- you know thinking about the world and discussing and debating the world and exploring who you are and your, your own thoughts on these issues and you know becoming a person that you want to become like university is a perfect space for that so mm. you know taking that opportunity and, and having fun when doing that I think that's that's really important that's one of the key tips that I'm sort of
0: do you have any key tips for queer students
2: not uh, well uh, not not more beyond what i have already sort of suggested um again i'd I'd sort of probably go back to the point about not having to be the champion of the community all the time don't put too much pressure on yourself to to fight every battle that, Mm. that comes your way because there are others that can fight the battle there are plenty of us in the university that see you and that are happy to, to talk to you or support you and to take up those fights for you for you know for some students that the experience will be you know different so for, for tra- you know one of the things that I've you know worked with some trans students on throughout the the, the last couple of years has been the issue of their dead name being mm. in their email and on QT systems but not reflecting the, their their actual name so you know There there are plenty of us around that are happy to take up those fights for you and to push for that change so that you don't have to do that kind of Mm. emotional labour. You know, so we're we're around if you just reach out to us Um, and also recognise that, you know, maybe at at this point in your life you don't necessarily need to know who you are because I didn't at the time when I was in university. That can come later or, you know, you can be many things over the course of your life, many different people.
0: And you will figure it out as you go along we're all figuring out still who we are I would reiterate that if there's a battle that you have that you can't figure out what to do about it or you don't want to be the champion to reach out to someone to one of us to the queer guild people to find someone who can be made aware of that because i feel like we're not perfect as academics and we don't see everything and there may be things that happen even in my classes that by virtue of everything that's going on i miss
2: absolutely yeah
0: but i want to know yeah so we want to be able to have those spaces we may not be able to fix everything immediately but we want to be able to have those conversations with you around even what we can do better.
2: Yeah. We're all interested in and committed to creating a university environment that's safe and inclusive and, you know, reflects the diversity of the community. And we're also, as part of it, we're also committed to supporting you through your your learning. So we want to see you succeed. And that's not just academic success, that's life success Mm. as well. Um, And... and and I should also say that life success sorting out those those issues in life is a big part it plays a big part in ensuring your academic success as well so we think holistically about these kinds of things so yeah yeah we're 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 not just here just to talk necessarily about the content of the unit but how you navigate university generally and life you know and, and if our experiences are of any help you know, if, if us gasbagging for you know an hour has been of any use, and anyone's still <laughs> listening to <laughs> this podcast, you know, that's a sign that you know we're, we're committed to to that.
0: We certainly want to, like, we want to engage, Matthew Ball. It has been an absolute pleasure being a colleague of yours for the last decade or more.
2: Am I dying? Uh, no, like I'm leaving.
0: No. <laughs> I've just. Just validating that I think that you are an excellent oh, human you, who you cares about be. making ethical decisions, and that's important to me. And thank you so much for being a part of How To Academia.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me, music by Poddington Bear and this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.